Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode was taped live in front of a virtual audience as part of a series of episodes examining the relationship between climate and security produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest global agricultural innovation network. The episode today, which is the eighth and final in our series, examines the relationship between climate variability and inequality in Indonesia. The episode kicks off with Grazia Pacillo, senior economist at CGIAR Climate Security, explaining the results of a report about the impact of climate variability on inequality in Indonesia. I then moderate a discussion with a diverse array of panelists who dive deeper into the ways in which climate variability impacts economic and social inequality in Indonesia and what can be done about it. So as I just mentioned, this is the final episode in the Climate Security series produced in partnership with CGIAR. Each of these episodes were taped live in front of a virtual audience and each tackle various elements of the ways in which climate variability impacts security around the world and what kinds of multidisciplinary partnerships can be established to overcome some of these challenges. A huge thank you to CGIAR for partnering with the podcast around this series, and you can view each episode on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, now here is the final episode, Climate Variability and Inequality in Indonesia, taped live. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the 8th Climate Security Webinar. My name is Grazia Bacillio, and I'm Senior Economist for the CGR Climate Security Focus. The Climate Security Webinars series are part of the Climate Security uh, Focus of the CGIR, where we are aiming to link climate impact to its drivers of security. In today's and last week's event, titled Charting the Path to Peace, we aim to shed light on some of the latest policies and initiatives working to ensure that all people in Vietnam and Indonesia have equal opportunities and resilience to climate variability. This event is part of the research project titled Climate Variability in Vietnam and Indonesia, funded by the European Union and the French Agency for Development Research Facility on Inequalities. Today, our focus will be on Indonesia. About 40% of the population in Indonesia faces high mortality risks due to multiple climate hazards, such as tsunami, floods, landslides, drought, and earthquakes. Climate change has increased the occurrence of many of these hazards, such as drought in the Southern Islands. It has increased the severity of floods and cyclones across the country and fastened sea level rise in the coastal areas. Averages temperatures have increased steadily in the past 40 years, and by 2060s, it is expected to increase between 0.9 and 2.2 degrees Celsius. Annual rainfalls have also increased by 12% in the past 30 years. 
With an estimated further increase of 15% in the next three to four decades, wetter and drier seasons are expected, especially in those regions south of the equator, including Java and Bali, which will increase even further the occurrence of climate hazards in the country. A USAID 2015 study estimated that by 2050, the total costs imposed by climate change in agriculture, health and gradual sea level rise in Indonesia will equate to about 1% of today's Indonesian GDP, roughly $9 billion. This is only a partial figure, of course, uh, as agriculture is not the only sector that is and will be impacted by climate variability. The rapid development of the past decade in Indonesia has moved a lot of people out of farm activities to wage and non-farm employment in urban areas. Some of these people are most marginalised and disadvantaged, such as migrants, women and low-skilled and educated young men and women. Due to lack of resources and opportunities, these groups are bound to be the most exposed and vulnerable to climate impacts. Despite its rapid and sustained economic development, Indonesia has become the sixth country with the greatest wealth inequality in the world, with the four richest people having more wealth than 100 million poor people in the country altogether. Economic inequality is reinforced by inequality of voice and opportunity, with the poorest excluded in favour of the rich. Failures to protect poorest and the most marginalized from climate impacts in both rural and urban areas will create the condition for poverty traps and further social exclusion, ultimately contributing to widen the gap between the richest and the poorest and creating the conditions for the insurgence of grievances and insecurity. Studies of direct impact of climate change and variability and inequalities are limited, as the literature mostly focuses on the direct effect on poverty and treats inequality as a secondary consequential issue. Poverty and inequality are, however, very distinct phenomena and often follow different patterns. As demonstrated in Indonesia, where sustained reduction of poverty has been achieved in the past, despite increasing inequality. Furthermore, a large majority of previous studies analyzes the relationship between climate and inequality across countries with less attention to how different groups within each country are impacted by climate hazards. In this paper, we use a within-country approach to dig deeper in this relationship and trying to understand whether climate variability has a bigger impact on the most vulnerable groups in Indonesia and whether this contributes to increased inequality in the country. In other words, we ask, is climate variability regressive or better? Does climate variability impact those uh, impacts more on those who are less able to cope with its consequences? And if so, what can we do to ensure an equal, sustainable and safe economic development for all in Indonesia? The results of our analysis show that the effect of climate variability is indeed progressive in Indonesia, as the impact of changing climatic conditions is not equally distributed, bringing disproportionately higher impacts upon farming households and on the poorest and most vulnerable people who are less capable of coping with climate hazards. We find lower coping capacities to be linked with demographic factors such as age, gender and education, with rural women, elderly and less educated, suffering the most of the consequences of climate variability. As for the case of Vietnam, some of these households often depend on transfers and remittances 
to deal with the impact of climate shocks. These strategies, however, seem to mostly focus on the short term, while long-term uncertainties remain. The climate impact on inequality is therefore clear for Indonesia. Our analysis finds that there is a clear evidence that climate variability increases inequality, with this effect becoming larger in those provinces that are mostly populated by poor and most vulnerable households. In conclusion, we strongly believe that understanding the, the direct relationship between inequality and climate variability is, as for the case of Vietnam, of paramount importance, not only for the socio-economic development in Indonesia, but also for stability and security. A recent paper published in 2020 shows that there exists a clear relationship between inequality and conflict in Indonesia. Therefore, the inequality challenge can really become a national security threat for Indonesian people, if not timely addressed. Despite many efforts have been made in Indonesia to tackle the rise in inequality, existing policies often had little success in addressing the needs, the rights and priorities of the most marginalized people. For instance, the so-called bottom 40, rural women and unskilled people, who are not usually covered by the social assistance targeting database. Our study contributes to this discussion and suggests that more real-time evidence is needed uh, on who bears the biggest impact of the climate events and asks for an increased effort to monitor these impacts, specifically for remote rural agricultural households who are often left behind. We also believe that short-term solutions are not enough. Developing sustainable coping and adaptive strategies strategies with and for the most vulnerable groups in both urban and rural areas will be essential. This is especially important for women, elderly and low educated people in Indonesia, who are the ones who are bearing the biggest burden of climate impact. Providing voice and representation to these groups will be pivotal for an equal and peaceful development for all in Indonesia. Welcome everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation about climate variability and inequality in Indonesia is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. In Indonesia, most, house, most farming households live below the poverty line and rely on agriculture for their subsistence. Therefore, climate-induced losses on crop and livestock productivity are inherently regressive in nature. They can severely worsen the life of the poorest, further increasing economic inequality. As Grazia explained, the paper we are discussing today finds that climate variability reduces household income and communities experiencing extreme temperatures see their income affected the most. The impact of climate variability on income is also most acutely felt by female-headed households and older populations. And these are just some of the key findings that we will be discussing today. Our conversation today is a dissemination event that is part of the research project Climate Variability in Indonesia and Vietnam from the EU-AFD Research Facility on Inequalities developed with the financial support of the European Commission and the coordination of the French Development Agency, AFD. 
The research initiative presented today is a complement to other climate initiatives in Indonesia that AFD supports, such as a non-sovereign loan to strengthen the capacities of the Meteorological, Climatological, and Geophysical Agency, BMKG, for marine meteorology data acquisition and modeling, and two credit lines to PTSMI dedicated to adaptation and mitigation of climate change with some allocations to health and social projects. And with that, let us get into our discussion today about the intersection of climate variability and inequality in Indonesia. And it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Atia Yumna is Deputy Director of Research and Outreach, the Smeru Research Institute. Welcome. Mubarak Ahmad is Country Director, Conservation Strategy Fund, Indonesia. Welcome. Maliki is Director for Poverty Alleviation and Community Empowerment, Ministry of National Development Planning, National Development Planning Agency, BAPENAS. Welcome. And Henrietta Fagerman is First Counselor, Environment, Climate Action, and ICT, Delegation of the European Union to Indonesia. Uh, welcome, everyone, and let us just jump into our conversation. And Maliki, my first question will go to you. Uh, can you tell us a bit? Thank you. Welcome. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the government of Indonesia's efforts towards inclusive economic growth and how these initiatives will contribute to climate adaptation, inequality reduction, and ultimately economic and social stability? Uh, also, uh, I feel obliged to ask you because Indonesia in is, is in its final year of its term as a member of the UN Security Council. Uh, in your view, is there a connection between inclusive growth and regional stability? Yes, uh, thank you, Mark. So, well, in, uh, Bapenas has already completed uh, our medium-term development plan uh, and we are implementing for the 2024 norm. So in our uh, medium-term development plan 2024, uh, it's uh, already mandated uh, seven national priorities for the next five years. That is actually consistent with a uh, three pillar of inclusive growth. Uh, by continuing to develop uh, the infrastructure uh, as, is, uh, as a priority for the last uh, RPGM, uh, we also uh, put uh, now, we also put development uh, of human capital as uh, our main priority. And then in the regional context uh, development, uh, we also put more emphasis on uh, reducing disparity among regions uh, by inventing new sources of growth uh, for the locals and also the national context. So this uh, medium-term development plan uh, will be implemented also consistent with the SDGs agenda. Uh, and uh, our RPGM, uh, it will be based on the principle of integrations, uh, holistic, uh, spatial, and also themat uh, thematic approach to invent uh, new economic centers, especially in the other islands. Uh, you know, uh, you, uh, now Java is uh, the center of the economic growth. And then we hope that in the next five years, it will shift to the other islands. So in the other hand, environment and also natural development, uh, building uh, stronger resilience uh, from natural shocks and climate change is uh, part of the seventh priority and equalize, uh, prioritize. Yeah? By considering the development constraints and also intergenerational responsibilities, which mainly are the carrying capacity of the Indonesian regions, we should also utilize all the natural resources as optimal 
smart considered as possible. So therefore, uh, not only we aim for the higher economic growth, but also we attempt to reach more sustainable single digit poverty and also uh, low inequality. That will be a, as a strong uh, base for us to eradicate uh, the uh, uh, chronic poor poverty as uh, mandated in SDGs. Uh, so then our objective goal is now to become upper middle income country that is just prosperous and also sustainable by end of 2024. And uh, by this uh, goal, we have to reach low Gini ratio as well as the high human uh, development index. So then we will have a base for becoming developed countries in uh, 20, 2024, uh, 2045 as in the vision 2045. So uh, for the next questions, you know, there is a very positive correlation between uh, poverty, inequality, as well as the economic growth. Higher inequality that uh, provide to large gap between the poor and also the non-poor will impeach negatively on growth. The inequality will provide negative perception, uh, especially to the investors. Uh, thus, uh, this uh, will make a lower potential growth. So a large uh, gap between economic growth uh, that is initiated by large gap uh, education attainment, large wealth ownership, and even large gap uh, social inclusion between the group uh, in the regions will potentially, uh, potentially create uh, social tension uh, and political tension. Mm, thank so you. in the last sentence, uh, okay, Indonesia is one of the biggest population. So then if we create as an examples, uh, for the large uh, diversities of languages, ethnics, and religions, uh, but still can uh, create equal opportunities for all. So this is an example for us, and then uh, hopefully we can create stability, uh, political stability in the regions. Th thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and Henrietta Fagerman, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, over the years, the European Union and Indonesia have worked together on issues related to economic development, good governance, and the environment. Uh, can you tell us more about this cooperation? Uh, what are some of the key initiatives on climate and inequality that you are working on? And how have they helped to address issues of climate change and inequality in Indonesia? Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this uh, in this webinar. So indeed, the European Union and Indonesia, and I would say more widely also uh, the ASEAN region, are really good partners uh, for climate action and for the protection of the environment. We have, of course, an ongoing policy dialogue. Uh, we have a lot of uh, trade and investment uh, between our two parts of the world. Uh, and we are also implementing a lot of concrete projects on the ground. And uh, I would like to just mention a few of these that are of particular relevance to the conversation we are having today. The first one I would like to mention is a project that is supporting uh, the ASEAN Farmers Organization on food security. This is part of the work that we are doing on sustainable consumption and produ production. And the aim of this project is to promote the local food varieties and to increase the economy of the true production and marketing innovation. So this is uh, obviously very important in a changing climate context and something that can help stabilize the income uh, sources of, of the uh, population groups that we are working with. Another example is a project that is called CRIC, C-R-I-C, which stands for Climate Resilient Inclusive Cities. And this is related to the vulnerability, of course, in the urban sector. 
this will work this project will work on or is working on uh, supporting the development of early warning systems for disaster and climate hazards in the cities something that will be instrumental in terms of uh, helping people live with and adapt uh, to a changing climate we have a very big uh, project uh, in ASEAN, in the ASEAN region on peatland management. And for those who are not experts on this topic, uh, I can tell that managing is something that is extremely important for uh, helping uh, mitigate climate, um, climate impact. And then finally, I would like to mention uh, a project that works um, on ocean governance which is particularly uh, linked to uh, restoration of marine ecosystems and marine protected areas and is working closely with the communities that are living in these areas. This is just some of the examples of what the European Union uh, delegation uh, is doing, European Commission, uh, European Union delegation, but of course also all our EU member states are working very actively on these topics. And the aim uh, is that we would like to bring all of these activities uh, to have a true partnership between the European Union and Indonesia, where we can collect these best practices and help disseminating them uh, with the much wider community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and Atia Yumna, I'm going to come to you now. Uh, based on recent the Smeru research and on your experience, can you help us understand how serious a problem inequality is in Indonesia and among Indonesia's population? What groups are bearing the biggest burden of climate challenges today? Mark, uh, thank you for inviting me. So uh, I think that the issue of inequality in Indonesia is becoming uh, increasing concern after the reform 97-98, uh, uh, once the financial crisis. Uh, so now inequality in both uh, rural and urban area actually tends to accelerate after the reform 97-98, with the exception uh, actually in the last four years where, uh, where the trends of inequality is uh, slightly decreasing. And, uh, but all this time, the Gini index in terms of uh, expenditure in the urban area is always higher than the, of the rural area. So, and then the last figure we have uh, on March 2020 in early pandemic, even though uh, total inequality uh, in Indonesia is slightly decreasing, but inequality in urban area actually is slightly increasing. So this, can be uh, an alarm for us uh, that uh, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, actually hits the, the urban uh, people uh, more. And for the your, your second uh, question on who bears the biggest burden of the climate change, Gracia uh, told us uh, previously that the poor and the vulnerable both in uh, rural and urban areas who are the, the, the uh, hardest hit. Why rural? Because this is related to their livelihoods because most of the poor in rural areas still rely on the agriculture sector. Uh, climate change uh, in the past uh, few years, uh, in the past trends indicate low capacity for uh, rural people to adapt to changes in climate. And same stories may happen to the uh, people lives in coastal area, the fishermen. So they are the group uh, who are most uh, the vulnerable and uh, the most poorest in the coastal area, uh, who will uh, bear the burden of change in climate change, such as sudden rises in temperature and uh, uh, and the 
will require them to sell further from the short to catch fish. So this is the, 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 the uh, kind of uh, vulnerabilities uh, they, they bear. So uh, why urban? Because this is related to special issues of poor living in the urban area. They are prone to disaster, floods, uh, droughts uh, in Jakarta, Medan, Bandung, home to more than million people, uh, respectively. Uh, they are they are they are uh, the 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 uh, they are post the greatest threat uh, of of uh, natural disaster. So. I think uh, those uh, both rural and urban areas uh, should be uh, our uh, concern. I mean, not only in rural, but also in urban people uh, li uh, uh, live in informal sector, uh, rely on informal sector also, also uh, uh, bears the burden of this climate change. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And Mubarak Ahmed, I'm going to turn to you now. Um, so earlier this month, uh, the new job creation law was approved by Parliament, and it's expected to substantially change Indonesia's labor system and natural resources management. And there have been some intense protests against this law. Uh, can you help us understand what are some of the implications of this new law for agriculture, climate resilience, and inequality, and more broadly, security in the country? Okay, so uh, thanks for the questions. Um, well, uh, first of all, about this uh, law that is called the uh, Undang-Undang uh, Cipta Kerja or Job Creation Law. Um, the first thing is that uh, we need to appreciate the Indonesian government intention uh, to uh, bring in more investment as a way to create more job. That's definitely a good idea. And then there are some provisions we have heard from from Pamaliki about the uh, easiness of uh, improvement improvement in the easiness of doing business, including for the small uh, smallholders and small scale companies uh, uh, and enterprises. Um, However, uh, when we look at the, the details of the law, uh, it touches uh, more than 70 laws. Uh, it changes more, more than 70 laws uh, that, was, that was in effect before. And then if you look into the implication into each of the law, you would wonder whether the intention match the provision that is uh, uh, explicitly uh, put in the new law about what changes are being affected. So uh, there, are, there are a few things well noted. Um, uh, there are some controversies about the, the labor benefits, um, about the, the uh, contractual arrangement, about the compensations. People have different opinions about it, but generally the labor uh, uh, group believe that, is, that it, the law actually uh, make life uh, less easier for them. Uh, the second part is about the implications for the uh, environment. Uh, it is very clear uh, the the law on this uh, job creation watered down a lot of uh, environmental provision in Indonesian uh, economic life. Um, it it makes the uh, the the what they call the environmental uh, the environmental license that was uh, that used to be separated from the business license now being combined based on the risk and then uh, what was before termed as license now 
being changed into three category. There are there are license for high risk business, and there are um, there are uh, approval uh, uh, for the medium business, and there is a self declaration that the company will comply with the rules. And then this kind of of uh, self declarations is of course very dangerous. And then we are seeing in many other parts that there will be. Uh, a much easier way of uh, of government of, of business player uh, abusing the environment because the criminal sanctions against the environmental crime is now abolished. Uh, all that was the, the all problem that can be termed before as a as an environmental crime now it becomes an administrative mistake. Mm -hmm. So consequently. The, the the fine being imposed on that if it is proven is, is very it's very small so if you ever heard of that uh, 7.6 trillion of uh, fine on a company that is burning 20,000 hectares of forest two years ago uh, now those uh, uh, under the new situation the 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 sanction uh, the fine will be maximum 10 billion rupiah and then for that with with that uh, comparison Companies can easily burn forests, convert forests, and, and it will never be termed as a crime. And then they will only be fined administratively. And uh, this, is, this is really worrying because that will, will ease up the destroying of the nature in Indonesia's context by the corporations, as Thank we have you. seen in many examples. Thank so, you. Uh, yeah, I guess this one, one closing. And then, of course, uh, as usual, when these things happen, the land acquisitions becomes easier and then always to the disadvantage of the uh, less powerful people on the ground. Hmm. Uh, well, th thank you. Thank you for that uh, analysis. That was very helpful. Um, let's turn to uh, Atia Yumna again. Um, so the paper that we're discussing today shows that remittances play a key role in mitigating the impact of climate variability on the incomes of older households and female-headed households in rural communities. In your view, can remittances and transfers be a valid long-term coping strategy for the climate crisis? And if so, what are the common issues and bottlenecks that Indonesia, Indonesian policymakers should address to ensure that these strategies are sustainable and available for those in need? Okay, my short answer is no. Remittance and transfer uh, are not the long-term uh, coping strategy. We need more, uh, yeah. more structural and strategic uh, or uh, policies that that can uh, dealt with with this situation, because uh, the the report says that uh, the the problem of this uh, female-headed household and older people is the last mile. Uh, people, yeah. So they, we we should have uh, more more and stronger affirmative uh, policies for them in terms of 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 these uh, inequality, poverty, vulnerabilities, and and this uh, related to this uh, climate change issues. So, yeah, my answer is is uh, my short answer is no. They are uh, the remittance and transfer are not the long-term coping strategy. We need to uh, work harder to fine-tuning the best uh, strategy, more strategic, uh, more strategies 
strategic policies and also the uh, social protection system that that you know uh, uh, protect them from from uh, this this kind of uh, burden. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, and Mubarak Ahmed, uh, we're going to turn turn back to you again. Uh, the analysis again in the, the paper shows that low-skilled and rural female-headed households are bearing the burden of climate impacts. In your view, what can be done to ensure an equitable and sustainable access to natural resources for all? And how can capacity building efforts for the elderly and less educated help them cope and adapt to climate challenges? Um, yeah, let me focus on the first part. Uh, the social protections that Atia mentioned should first start with the recognition of people's rights over natural capital. That's the bottom line from my point of view. So the government should, should stop all the displacement um, as a way of improving, if, of, as a way to increasing investment in this country. So. We have been developing for 70 years and we are still doing uh, displacement in order to develop corporations and business. So I, I don't think no matter what we do to empower people, as long as displacement take place, uh, the, the, the equality will never be there. And then uh, people in the rural area will always be in this disadvantageous position. So um, protecting social, uh, uh, well, social protection should start again with this. Uh, protecting people's right of natural capital. And the very first one of that is land ownership. So if you look at what happened, this is the part that is the government is not very, uh, is not uh, doing uh, in a very bold way, so to speak. Yes, there are there are programs that government is doing that they call the uh, social forestry and, and, uh, and uh, uh, agrarian reform, but the speed, it's way from what was promised before. Uh, so I guess uh, the other part, the capacity building, the other one, of course, it, it helps here and there, but the fundamental is protecting people's assets uh, as a way of, of getting the legitimate income. Thank you. Uh, and Maliki, uh, we're gonna turn back to you. Um, your department is responsible for ensuring equitable and inclusive growth for Indonesians. And I know that you have a roadmap for the implementation of national social protection policies. Can you help us understand how these policies will help the most vulnerable in the light of the current climate crisis? And a sort of parallel question to that is, is I'd be curious and, and want to know your view on the role of Sharia finance to reduce inequality and promote efforts to mitigate the impact of climate variability on vulnerable populations. Yeah, uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, actually on the roadmap itself uh, is uh, going to be established uh, and revised uh, after responding to our uh, COVID uh, pandemic crisis now. Because uh, this uh, outbreak of the novel coronavirus uh, will actually like threatens all the entire gains in reducing poverty. So both uh, way in parallel way, uh, we responding to this catastrophe as well as on how we can build uh, stronger resilience of the poor people into uh, from the natural shocks and also the climate change. We are actually mandated uh, to reform our social protections. 
starting from 2021. So these uh, reformations uh, will consist of uh, six important aspects, uh, which are improving uh, quality of data, uh, which are already mentioned about all the vulnerable groups that is maybe not included in our data, and then strengthening the integrations of the social protection programs, especially for says like integration from the social assistance and also the economic empowerment. And then sharpening the delivery mechanisms, uh, digitations of social assistance, develop, development of adaptive social protection. Uh, that is the last, um, and the, the, this, the, the last one is actually very consistent what actually we can uh, uh, cope with the current color, uh, climate crisis. And uh, the sixth uh, strategy is actually to, uh, to have more uh, sustainable financing mechanisms. So this reform uh, is uh, consistent with what actually already uh, put in agenda for the medium term development plan with more uh, emphasizing on creating sustainable strategy to increase the resilience of the vulnerable groups. Uh, that uh, includes uh, elderly and also the people with disability. So uh, let me uh, emphasizing on uh, the first aspect, which is data, so that we need to uh, complete and also improve the quality of data of these vulnerable uh, people. Uh, and then uh, this way we can uh, put more, uh, uh, put more uh, strong integrations between the programs. That also enables us to respond faster to the shocks uh, during uh, gradual shocks such as the climate change. And uh, for the second questions, uh, Zakat and Wakaf is actually other, uh, as other philanthropy funds, it will moderate uh, the social gaps, uh, what uh, the government has been targeted. So we see the Zakat is, can be an option for a breakthrough for uh, creating the uh, creating innovative uh, model for poverty alleviations. So if we pay attention to the strategy detail actually in the Holy Quran that we teach people uh, how to fish rather than giving the fish. So I, uh, we really hope that Zakat redistribution is not only providing people with in-kind assistance, but also empowering their economy. So while Wakaf is, has a lot of uh, possibility, Wakaf can uh, direct it to uh, stimulate uh, development of real sectors, uh, improving uh, social uh, services, and also more importantly, to support sustainable uh, environmental uh, considered national development. There is actually a few examples of Wakaf uh, that contribute to alleviating poverty and reducing the inequality. Uh, like in uh, province, uh, Jambi provinces, uh, as one of the provinces in Sumatra, uh, they built an uh, electricity building uh, from hydropower, uh, supported by collecting funds from individual zakat. So it's provided actually more, uh, quite a lot, like 800 households from four villages with uh, strong electricity. Uh, so you. that's uh, my answers. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and Henrietta Fagerman, uh, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, from your experience, what are some of the most effective policies, initiatives, and measures to mitigate the impact of climate variability on the most vulnerable? And which of these would best fit the case for Indonesia? Thank you very much. Well, first of all, uh, we are now in the middle, of course, of a, a huge 
crisis, uh, the COVID crisis. Um, and I would say that the next crisis or the ongoing crisis, uh, the other ongoing crisis is really the crisis of, of climate security. We just need to look at the, the burning of the Amazonas, the burning in Australia, Siberia, and here in Indonesia, melting of the Arctic, the flood and the droughts, and the increasing temperatures, and uh, and, and all of these issues uh, that that to to really see that we are sitting on a, a ticking climate bomb, I would say, and and this I think does really pose an unprecedented threat to to the global security. There are going to be huge uh, economic consequences uh, of, of all these changes that we see. And, and it's really very important that we find good ways of of dealing with this. So I would like to mention just a few uh, things that, that we believe uh, are, are really crucial for this. First of all, I think we need uh, across the globe, um, between us and, and in our individual parts of the world, we need holistic, green and strategic ways of managing these risks. So we need to continue to gather information and analysis, and that's why I'm very happy with projects such as this one, to understand really better how the, um, how the climate security concerns can be integrated into all the relevant policy areas. This could be from conflict prevention to development, to from disaster risk reduction to investment and budget allocation, and really to see how we can put climate, mainstream climate into all these areas. We need a greater coherence, a greater coordination. Uh, and I would like to just mention one of the most recent policy developments uh, in the EU, what we call the European Green Deal, which is an attempt to try to bring all these things together and develop develop a true framework where we bring uh, energy, transport, uh, circular economy, food production and a number of other policy areas together in, in one batch. Then the second thing I would like to mention is really the working together. Um, I think the, our common security fundamentally <clears throat> depends on how, how all of us as big emitters uh, can come together and deliver on our climate commitments. Uh, we are already well underway, both here in Indonesia and in the EU and other parts of the world. Uh, but it's important that we, that we need to ramp up our climate ambitions and, and to really make sure that we, that we deliver um, on, our, on our Paris uh, commitments. Then the third thing I would like to mention is um, investment and trade. So achieving the global growth expectations that, that we all have um, collectively will require uh, some estimates say up to $590 trillion in uh, infrastructure investments by 2030. Failing to align this with the Paris uh, Agreement uh, goals will really fundamentally undermine the opportunities that we have for global climate security. So we need to have investments uh, that are fully aligned to the climate objectives and really make sure that that, that is the priority of, of our new investment. We are looking uh, between the European Union and, and Asia, we are looking at a new connectivity uh, strategy to try to connect us better uh, in, in all ways. And, and I think that's this is the kind of a, a start uh, to build on, on really, uh, that we can build on to, to make sure that turns into to reality. We are, as the European Union, really trying to make all our trade relations uh, green. And, and I think that is uh, also going to be the trend for, for, for our talks in the future. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you. Uh, so 
over the course of this conversation, and also uh, as it is evident in the paper, you know, it's clear that climate variability exacts a heavier impact on the most vulnerable, and that strengthening of climate resilience capacities of the most vulnerable is necessary for broad-based sustainable development. So I have the same question I'll pose to each of you, and it's this. Cognizant of the increasing climate challenges, what would be the two things that you would prioritize to mitigate the impact of climate on the most vulnerable and put a halt to the increasing divide between the richest and poorest in Indonesia? So two ideas, two thoughts to, to leave us with. And uh, Maliki, I will start with you. Okay, uh, as uh, earlier mentioned that uh, we are in uh, Bapanas, uh, has uh, an effort to develop the adaptive social protection to protect the poor and vulnerable during emergency situations. So in the uh, in our medium-term development plan in 2024, has targeted the adaptations of ASP by 30% uh, of national and also local government by 2024. So uh, there uh, are three critical elements of adaptive social protection stated in our medium-term development plan. First is combining and integrating social protections, disaster risk management, and also climate change adaptations in a comprehensive adaptive social protection approach specific to the context of Indonesia. Uh, and then the second one is strengthening the social protection institutional system to be more responsive to socioeconomic risk due to the climate change and natural disasters. And then the third one is development of a sustainable uh, adaptive social protection financing scheme to overcome climate change and natural disaster risk. And the SP uh, roadmap uh, development process is actually consists of several phases. Uh, the earlier phases uh, include stakeholders mapping and then institutional framework development, stack talking analysis, hazard exposure, and also the vulnerability assessment as well as the gap analysis. So the final phase uh, will focus on finalizing Indonesia's uh, adaptive social protection strategy, including the ASP options development, ASP formulations for the poor and vulnerable, and also completing the roadmap itself. Mm. So that's all. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And Atia Yumna, to you now, uh, could you give us two ideas, two suggestions, two solutions perhaps uh, for how we can uh, reduce inequality and also combat climate issues in Indonesia? Okay, Mark, uh, this, the first one, I think it's in line with, with uh, Maliki has said before, uh, that we need to create a social protection and uh, what, uh, social protection system that is sensitive to the needs livelihood condition and vulnerabilities of the poor according to the spatial context of the group. So we need to utilize also all data in, and information about specially based uh, poverty and vulnerabilities, such as the distribution of the poor and the location of slums and uh, so on uh, and so forth. So I'm really looking forward actually to this uh, transformation of uh, our social protection program, as uh, Maliki mentioned, uh, to be more adaptive, that combine that, uh, those three elements of social protection, climate change, uh, adaptation, and disaster risk mitigation. And then, of course, obviously, this will be 
uh, hard work for many actors and stakeholders. So coordination uh, is the key uh, words here. Uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this uh, 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 transformation. And the second one from uh, from the, the the people side is uh, how we educate people to cope, uh, especially the, the the most vulnerable one to cope with the climate change, uh, to minimize the hazard and increase their resilience. This uh, and <coughs> at the end, it's will uh, how to increase their adaptive capacity uh, capacity as well. So I think this is also uh, will be another hard work. Uh, from uh, from the the people side, so this will also be uh, uh, many actors and stakeholders work as well. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, and now Mubarak Ahmad, uh, we'll turn to you for your two ideas and two suggestions. Okay, I would mention first about the mitigations policy and implementation, and the second part about the jurisdictional approach to low carbon development that is now being promoted. So on the first part, I think um, in this context of 1%, it is good to mention that the uh, Indonesian government has just finalized the, the, the renewals of uh, letter of intent with the government of Norway, um, which serve as the basis of further uh, implementations of REDD plus program, reducing emission for deforestation and forest degradation. Uh, so I hope all the EU countries can join that that type of arrangement also, and that will be very encouraging for us and the Indonesian government, especially, to seriously implement REDD, which is which has been hanging around for a while. So um, with this program, there are eleven uh, priority provinces that have had their own plan, but seems to be forgotten because the the. The government keep delaying the implementations of it. Now, with this new spirit, I hope uh, it can be renewed. But of course, with the challenge from the new law on the job creation, um, so there's a, there is there is a conflict there. Uh, and then uh, the very fundamental thing about this RDD implementation in Indonesia is improvement in in land governance, including about protections of national capital uh, by uh, of the people. So uh, related to the mitigation strategy is also government needs to pay attention to the energy sector in which uh, we should shift to non-oil palm based renewable energy. Because uh, if it is depending on oil, oil palm based, then there will mean more disruptions to the forest um, and, and certainly not friendly to the climate. So the second uh, ideas that I would like to promote here is that what has been being done by about 12 kabupatens within the roundtable of uh, sustainable kabupaten, uh, uh, there is this, this uh, circle, so to speak, roundtable for sustainable kabupaten. One of them in which we are working is uh, Kabupaten Sintang. In this place, uh, they are really implementing the low carbon strategy wholeheartedly, changing their plan, changing the policy, including scaling down the oil palm uh, uh, plantation size. The the previous government has given like more than a half a million hectares of oil palm license. Now it is being scaled down to only 200,000 hectares. And then along with that, the, the Bupati is leading the improvement of all cooperative small-scale arrangement uh, about the partnership of the, of the uh, small-scale uh, plantation with the big ones to promote this equality. So there will be no more cheating 
between the company and the and the people through these cooperatives, so to speak. And then what is also interesting in the Kabupaten is that uh, in terms of food security, uh, they are trying to 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 localize uh, to promote the permanent uh, rice farming through the, the power of the women's group. I would like to mention that. And there are some powerful women's group there that has been so have been showing some success story about uh, protecting forests, uh, 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 moving toward permanently uh, resided uh, farming. And then with that, they are improving the family incomes and, and bringing better educations for the family. I think if that examples can be followed and promoted and, and, and copied by many other companies in Indonesia, we will have uh, we will be heading toward what we call a more resilience and more equal uh, uh, a development toward the future uh, under a less severe climate change. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, and now, uh, Henrietta Fagerman, we will turn to you for uh, final thoughts on two ideas, two suggestions uh, from your perspective uh, that could uh, help reduce inequality and confront climate change as well. Thank you very much. I think I will, uh, with the risk of repeating myself, I would again say uh, holistic and green strategic management of planning. And then I would also say really to emphasize the need for all our infrastructure policies and plans, budget to try to include resilience to climate change and be in line with the Paris commitment. So the 1.5 degree uh, temperature goal. So I think there's a lot we can do, all of us, to really strengthen the way that we make green investments. Uh, and, and it's something that we as the European Union is very committed to working on um, across the globe, but also here in Indonesia. Um, the European Investment Bank uh, has a very, very strong climate agenda. They are about to set up their shop here in uh, in Indonesia, and um, and I think we can uh, we can already confirm their big willingness to work on uh, on climate friendly investments here. And I very much support the con comment that was made previously uh, on really focusing on renewable energy. We know that renewable energy is always, always more cost-effective. It creates more jobs. Uh, it, it is simply a, a better idea than, than conventional energy at this current time. So to look at our investments, our budgets, our plans uh, and in a holistic way and, and to focus on, on this, uh, I would say that's my two and a half ideas. Well, well, thank you. Thank you all for your uh, contributions today, for answering my questions. I, I appreciate your time. Uh, I am now going to turn the screen back over to Grazia, who can offer some concluding remarks. So Grazia, over to you, uh, and thank you all again. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark, and thanks to our speakers for this very interesting discussion indeed. This is the final debate on charting the path to peace a side double event to the CGR climate security series uh, aiming at linking climate impacts to each drivers of security. With our first webinar on climate variability impacts in Vietnam, we reached hundreds of people around the globe, and I'm sure that we will also reach many more with today's event. The increased uh, and widespread interest in these topics clearly demonstrates the need to provide a platform where reflections around climate impacts, existing risks and threats, and socio-political security can be discussed. And this is what we aim to do with our webinar series. Creating opportunities for knowledge sharing and collaboration is vital. It can help saving the lives of millions 
And on this, the science and the technologies the CGR and other research institutes produce are very important. In our today's event, it became clear that climate threats, climate threats are exacerbating inequality in Indonesia and that increasing inequality can have a tremendous destabilizing effect across the country. Therefore, tackling the climate inequality nexus will be a clear future challenge for Indonesian policymakers. In addressing this challenge, I would like to underline three main points that I felt were important in our discussion. The multidimensionality and complexity in Indonesia, of inequality in Indonesia are a concern. Despite some improvement in the past few years, disparities between urban and rural areas are, are of a concern. Nonetheless, inequality patterns are very complex, covering different geographies and demographies in the countries and not only the rural and urban divide. They should be taken, to, taken into account when studying and addressing the inequality challenge in the country. The second point is that remittances and transfers are not a sustainable strategy for coping with climate impacts. A social protection system that is sensitive to the needs, conditions and livelihood of the poorest and most vulnerable is needed. And the adaptive social protection system uh, promoted by Bapinas seems to go towards this ambition. However, social protection systems are not enough. Social protection policies are not enough as long as displacement of rural population is in place. More needs to be done to enforce what is called the right to natural capital, first of all, land for the poorest and most marginalized. Improving evidence is, of course, important. This is my third point. Strengthening the data collection exercises that reach the last miles to ensure that our understanding and knowledge on who bears the biggest burden of climate impacts is essential. Further analysis, vulnerability assessment, almost real-time gathering are needed. Like those of previous debates, we hope that today's reflections will inspire policymakers and practitioners to seek tangible solutions that help millions in Indonesia and throughout the world in coping and adapting, adapting to the climate security challenge. Thanks again for joining us. This event concludes for now the CGR Climate Webinar Series speaking for updates and on future events. News and updates on these and other ongoing work can be found on our homepage, climatesecurity.cgr.org. Thank you and see you soon. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you again to CGIAR for this content partnership. Uh, and again, I strongly encourage you to follow the links in the show notes of this episode to view other episodes of this series and learn more about CGIAR and the links between climate variability and security. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Bye.